0: You know why I'm so excited. As so I'll tell our listeners why I'm so excited. And you just can't hide it? I can't. I can't hide it anymore. <laughs> I am moving this weekend, and I'm so pumped. I'm still going to be in the Dallas area, but no longer close to downtown. Because you know what? That appeal has kind of disappeared.
1: I mean, yeah. Because I'm also, as soon as my lease is up, looking to move further outside the city. Because, you know, before miss rona came to us that was a huge plus that i was willing to pay more to be closer to restaurants and bars and you know a shorter distance to downtown to commute well i haven't been to a restaurant or a bar (laughs) since february yeah Um, i haven't gone into the office since february so now i'm like well i'm just paying a lot no i'm out i'm deuces yo yeah but then i also realized in making this decision for me at least is moving to the other side of Austin, my commute to downtown, even though I'll be, like, probably 10-15 miles further, would probably be about
0: the same, well, time-wise. And that's also super crazy. My commute, one when I do go back to the office, won't be as much. But that's another reason. I'm able to get more space for, like, the same amount, and I've been working from home, and you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm tired of working in my bedroom. Like, I'm over it.
1: yeah same i mean that's that's my thing is i'm like you know what i want to get a place that either has like an office or like a chunk of the living room that i can turn into my office space because i don't know about y'all but my desk that i work from is in my bedroom so There are days when I feel like I just wake up, roll over into my desk and work and don't ever (laughs) leave my bedroom. And it's making me lose my damn mind. So now I, even though my computer and my monitors are in here, I I work at the kitchen table because I'm like, I need some natural light and to not be in my bedroom.
0: I know. It's just so interesting to me because you've, I mean, you know this and I know this about you as well. We've always been the type that we want to live as close to the city as possible, if not in the city. We love all the things and the stuff. Well, right now we can't do the things and the stuff, so it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, my ideal apartment has always been like a downtown high-rise apartment. But one, when I grew up and had a job and realized, oh my god, <laughs> I could get a studio for $3,500 a month. Or I could get, you know, a one-bedroom for like a third of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I'll do that. For real. Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
1: And I'm Tyler.
0: And we're moving out of the city. Moving on out. <laughs> To the
1: suburbs! Also, one thing I did want to say that is so off-topic that I'm just going to, like, hammer it, just shove it in right now. Yeah. So you know how I fall into, like, Wikipedia holes or YouTube holes, and it just goes down and it doesn't make any sense after a long time?
0: You always fall into the holes.
1: Yeah, but I was on YouTube and fell down the hole of listening to uh, emergency broadcasts uh, from around the world to hear what they sound like because they're different everywhere we grew up in oklahoma so hearing the like the national weather service like that okay that's basically like your alarm in the evening it's like oh that means it's dinner time (laughs) pretty much um but no, that i looked at these compilations and there was one that was probably the eeriest and it's in china and it was for an earthquake because in china they have earthquake warning systems because their systems are able to tell when one goes off that's further away they can alert the cities and give them a couple seconds warning to like take cover before the shaking hits them wow which is really cool that is um, but how they do it is you know how all the all cities basically have like sirens yeah well there's our big ass speakers with their sirens and on a lot of the buildings they have these, like, emergency red lights. So the alarm goes off, and it's across the city. All the lights start flashing red, and it's a countdown until the shaking hits. So it's like, er, five, er, four, er, three, two, one, take cover, take cover. But in Chinese. I don't know how to count backwards in Chinese. And then the shaking blew my mind. One of the most interesting and creepiest things ever. Like, can you imagine? You're just hearing a countdown to, like, oh, death.
0: That is very eerie and horrifying, and I don't really know how to move past that.
1: Well, it's eerie and horrifying, but also awesome. Well, because, I mean, the alert. You know, people getting
0: warning. And the fact that they can do it for an earthquake is really impressive.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's what we'll leave it off of. But do you see how that tangent didn't relate to anything, but I had to tell y'all?
0: Absolutely. No, that's interesting <laughs> information to have. I kind of want you to send me that link. Oh, I will. So before we jump into today's episode, we want to remind you guys about our live Q&A on Patreon. We're having that on October first. So that's coming up. I believe it's going to be 7pm central. I think that's what we said in the last episode. And we just want to talk to you guys. We want to chat with you live. So if you want to be a part of that, be sure to hop on over to our Patreon and join the community. We have a lot of different levels. This is not the only thing that you will have access to. We have all of our wonderful murder minis. We've got a lot of other posts, some recipes, and we'll have another set of really fun things like this live coming in the future. We're cooking those up as we speak. So if you just want to show us your support and also get extra episodes and maybe even direct one of your own, hop on over to our Patreon and sign on up. And don't forget to join us on the for the live Q&A October 1st.
1: Also, make sure that you are subscribed. Go to whatever listening platform you listen to us on. Hit that subscribe button or whatever it says, like that's similar to subscribe. I don't know. Follow, keep up with, stock, all those buttons. <laughs> uh, hit those. That way you'll get our episodes immediately every time they upload on Tuesdays.
0: This week's topic is one that, to be honest, we've done a lot of cases that would fall into this, but we decided to focus specifically on this also because we found a couple of cases that we really wanted to do. So this week we are talking about hitchhiker murders. As you know, hitchhiking used to be a major thing. Please don't do it. Please don't do it anymore. How many times have we told you guys it's a bad idea? It really is. And we're definitely going to Hone in on that, and you'll you'll truly, after this episode, be like, you know what? Hitchhiking is bad, if you didn't already think that. But if you're listening, you probably already think that.
1: Yeah, well, and I mean, just in a realistic sense, there are so many other options that are super low cost. I mean, you can get, like, a Greyhound bus across the state for, like, $9 right. in a lot of places. So don't hitchhike, please. Don't don't end up becoming a case that we do in the future.
0: Please absolutely don't ever want anything like that to happen. Before we get into our topics, we're going to open up our wine. Tyler, what wine did you pick?
1: So the wine I'm drinking is one that I know you're very familiar with, and I know Mama's very familiar with, and I think it's one of y'all's favorite, or maybe just one of y'all's go-tos, but I didn't realize it at first because they've changed the label I'm doing the 2019 The Show Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina. It is not the horse on the label anymore.
0: I know. It's so different that I'm not even sure.
1: I mean, it is. It's the Joel Gott brand and everything. Oh. It's the same one. It's just now instead a picture of Patagonia leading into the Andes Mountains in black and white. It's really pretty. Like, it's much more my aesthetic of a bottle than the stupid little horse dude jumping.
0: Yeah, that new label is a vast improvement. I like it a lot better, too. I think that's one that Mama has tried more than me. I've definitely had it. I mean, and it's a Malbec from Argentina, from the Mendoza region. So obviously, it's amazing. Is Mendoza Mm -hmm. a region or a city?
1: It's a region. Okay, good.
0: I was correct. You had this look on your face, and I was like, is it a city? I was wrong. No, I was right. I know it's amazing because of that alone.
1: Yeah, well, and I always thought that this was like an eighteen dollar bottle or like something closer in that range. I got it for fourteen, and a lot of places I saw online, it's you usually get it for like around twelve to fourteen.
0: Nice, that's not bad at all.
1: So, a couple things that some people said about it: one was like it's bold red with dark berry flavors, noticeable tannins, and very peppery on the finish. So, kind of, kind of your solid Malbec. Profile, your Argentinian Malbec profile. Yeah. Another person said it's a medium garnet hue with a nose of blackberry and mocha. It opens with plum and wet cedar. The middle is quick, and the finish has notes of violet, clay pot, tobacco, and dried black currant. Oh my god, that's like my mouth started watering.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: I know. That sounds like the perfect red wine. Like, all of those. I'm like, that is what I want out of a red. And the last person said that it's a very solid Malbec with black currant, plum, black cherry, and just enough oak and vanilla to make it all work. Wonderful with a meaty grilled pizza. It's a nice long finish. And they got it as a gift to from their new neighbors.
0: Oh, that's really sweet. I know. I One
1: day when I either own a house or, like, live in a house... I want to be that neighborhood bitch, who's like, "Oh, the new family's in town. I brought you a lasagna. Just give me a call when you want to. You're ready for me. I could pick up the Pyrex dish. Here's a bottle of wine. I'm really southern when I do it. I guess. I guess
0: so. I guess so. Maybe
1: I'll come out with an apron and some lemonade for like the lawn boys and nothing else.
0: I mean, I love neighbors and whatnot, but they're not getting my Pyrex. I'm buying a, a like a, one of those foil like throwaway ones. Pans. I mean,
1: they're going to give it back. That's the test to see if they're going to be good neighbors or not. <laughs> or if you need to call Cindy from the HOA to go ballistic on their asses about their hedges. The choice is theirs. Bring back my Pyrex, bitch. XOXO.
0: My coworkers got me an awesome bottle of wine for my birthday. I loved it. It was delivered to my house. It was so sweet. Aww. It's not the one I'm doing tonight. I already drank it.
1: Yeah, you were saying that one was good, but I'm gonna get uh, to opening this one. It's a regular cork. It's in there.
0: (laughs) Ugh! Tyler, you almost made such a mess. It's out, though. And you clearly scared yourself a little bit.
1: I was also surprised that noise came out of me.
0: You are not alone in that surprise. (laughs) i'm really jealous of this wine you should be that is so dark
1: yeah oh yes definitely getting that blackberry and yeah mocha a lot has a very coffee
0: do i need to give you and your wine a moment alone together
1: (laughs) no (laughs) we're just friends
0: (laughs) that's not what i asked
1: I, I totally am joking, unless you're into it, me talking to the wine.
0: <laughs> Were you about to taste that? <laughs> no.
1: I just I am really, really, really ready for some wine, so it's it smells good. It smells like a great Malbec. Jump into yours. And go.
0: You've literally put that up to your mouth, and I saw you catch yourself.
1: <laughs> listen. Listen, honestly, we've made it like 123 episodes, and I don't Maybe once. I don't think, though, that we've ever accidentally drank before.
0: I don't think so. I think so. you might have once. Yeah, I think I think I did do it once. Because I remember you being like, Brittany!
1: But even still, I'm just saying, that is a higher than 99% success rate.
0: Yes, it is. So the wine I picked, the 2019 Ouse de Beauvignon Picpoul de Pinay from south, the south of France. And this was one that I have seen at Total Wine a couple of times. It's $12 a bottle, and it's one of their obscure whites. So, Pickpool is not something that you will find in a lot of places. I've.
1: Obscure whites?
0: Yeah. And okay, so there's a story behind this. So, like I was saying, Pickpool is not a white wine that you're going to find in many locations. I've only ever had one before, and it was actually from Bending Branch. And so when I picked it up, one of the workers, he like walked over to me and he was like, have you ever had a pick pool? And I was like, actually, yes, I have. And he was like, oh, that's, they're, they're really rare. This is the only one we have in the entire store. And that's saying a lot because this was a huge total wine. And he was just like, these are, you know, we have our obscure and like other reds and whites. And this is one of the whites. And um, people love this wine. This one in particular, people rated the 2019 vintage as the highest year, and it was a four out of five. This is a really good everyday wine. It's dry, and it actually has a pretty low acidity. So it's not what a lot of these reviewers called an acid bomb, which is so true about a lot of white wines where they're super acidic. And you're like, that's great. I'm going to have heartburn in 10 minutes. Maybe that's just me.
1: No, that's, yeah.
0: This is light bodied. It has citrus, lemon, and grapefruit, as well as hints of apple and pear. Someone even mentioned a little bit of melon. Then you've also got your hints of minerals, stone, and honey. I'm really looking forward to this one. This one is just a screw top. Oh, easy. I know. More and more screw tops coming around. Um this is so insanely light.
1: I love the contrast that like mine is insanely dark and yours is insanely light.
0: I know, definitely major contrast. So the smell is citrusy, definitely some lemon peel, and then I can smell the minerals. The minerals in the stone most definitely like are wet there. Like rock after rain. More mineral than stone. Wow. Oh. It smells very light, but it sounds like the description is pretty, pretty accurate. And a lot of people called this their like go-to house white. So it's I, I think it's going to be a really good white wine. That's just a, a great go-to for pretty much any yeah. any day. So well, and I think I've had a
1: Picpoul Blanc before. I mean, probably with you.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's one we tried when we were at Bending Branch. One of the many times.
1: Oh, yes. Okay, that's cuz I'm like that's very familiar to me. All right. Well, cheers.
0: Cheers. Woo. Oh goodness. Mm.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Mine is doing the thing where it makes your cheeks like be like pucker like ooh. Um, Oh,
1: but you can feel, like, on the outside on your skin? Yeah. Yeah, I always thought I was allergic to, like, Mexican food, because whenever I eat, like, Taco Bell or something, not good Mexican food, but, like, bad Mexican (laughs) food, it always does that and makes my cheeks, like, and skin tingle.
0: Maybe I am. I was about to say, maybe you are, but... Don't tell me about your Taco Bell eating habits. Let's just keep those to ourselves. <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. She just read me to filth, y'all. Um, I'm no, going to talk no. about my wine instead. Is that better?
0: Hey, we all have those late night Taco Bell cravings that we give in to. I said
1: nothing about
0: it being late night. <laughs> okay. Well, I was trying to help you a little bit there, but never mind. Please continue. Tell me about your wine.
1: It is so intense. You know how sometimes we describe, like, really intense reds as, like, a punch to the jaw? Or at least I do? Right. Uh, this one just kicked my ass. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to get my wa- my jaw wired shut. This is one that would stand up to the fattiest, most flavorful, like, prime rib.
0: Oh my god, yes.
1: Like, a prime rib with, like with the horseradish, like, sauce on it and stuff, where you need... About as most intense wine as you can get. The show can do that. But the intensity is in a way that, like, I don't feel like I have to, oh, God, I need to go get some food to eat with this. It's still really enjoyable just drinking on its own. This might be my go-to bottle in this price range.
0: Really? You know, I can tell you're enjoying this one a lot more than ones I've seen in the past. Like, you're just really into it. You're like, yes, this is the one. I'm... Can I marry I'm it? I'm
1: shook. Because I think I've had it before with Mama. And, I mean, Mama has a great taste in wines. I don't think I've had a bad one with her yet. No,
0: me either. Um,
1: But this isn't one that I remember specifically, taste-wise. But now I'm like, how? How did I not remember? I don't know if it's just the 2019 vintage is superb or what. This wine is fantastic. Or it's just that I really need some wine and this is absolutely hitting the spot. So a combination of all. It's the perfect <laughs> storm wine.
0: It is the perfect storm wine. Well, I got to tell you about this white wine. It is unlike any other white wine I've ever had. And I don't think it's like the last Pickpool I had. And maybe that's the difference of I had a Texas one and this is one from France. So immediately you're hit with that lemon. And it's almost sour, but not in a bad way. Like, I'm not sitting over here, like, sucking on a wine warhead or anything. It's got that lemon, though. Maybe a little hint of grapefruit. Mostly lemon. After that is when you start to taste those minerals. And it kind of closes out with a little bit of sweetness. That apple and that pear. It's so delightful. When you talk about the perfect wine for a really hot day... This is it. Just thinking how that lemon just really brightens mm. everything up. Yeah, you just feel it on your tongue, and I feel like almost little like bubbles on my tongue, like those little fermentation bubbles. Not like, not like champagne bubbles, but it closes out with that mineral. It's the very last flavor mm. that's left on your tongue. It's like in the middle a little bit, then you get the sweetness, and then it closes out with the minerals. So, if- is it almost like a tonic water minerality? Yeah, I think that's a good description. I think this is a fantastic one for everyone to go try. It may not be for everyone. It's not like a Pinot Grigio. Like I know Pinot Grigios are also very citrusy. It's not like that. It's sweeter. I mean, from what you're, it's and when I say sweeter, oh no no no, I know what it is. It's the the acidity. It's that low acidity that makes you taste like these apples and pears and those flavors that make it not like a Pinot Grigio.
1: Yeah, I mean, from what you're describing, it sounds like the wine form of, like, a gin and tonic with a lemon twist.
0: Kind of. Let me try it again. No, dude, that was a really good description. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Which sounds amazing.
0: (laughs) It's really good. I highly recommend this one. I'm glad I picked a white. I was thinking about doing a red tonight, but, again, I saw this one in Total Wine. I've seen it multiple times, and I finally was like, you know what? Now's the time to buy it. I've been wanting to do it for the podcast. And the bottle, it's kind of weird. It's, like, green and it reminds me a little bit of Heineken. Not, like, the shape of it, but just the way the, it's carved with, like, I don't know, whatever. It's, it's all good. But it does not taste like Heineken. I really enjoy it. I implore you to find a pick pool and find other obscure whites and give them a try. Okay. Well, we both have our wines one on either side of the wine spectrum so now it's time to jump into our cases tyler tell me about your hitchhiker murder well the case i'm
1: doing today is the hitchhike murderer anthony jackson he's known as the hitchhike murderer like that's they weren't being very creative with names
0: yeah considering pretty much every case in the 70s did involve hitchhiking that really isn't very creative when did yours happen
1: The early 70s, of course. Oh,
0: okay. You know, when hitchhiking was was... a mode of transportation.
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I was surprised looking it up that it's not the Boston Hitchhike Murderer or anything. And finding research was not easy. And I think a big part of it was when you type in Hitchhike Murderer, there's so many. It's not a, I mean, it'd almost be like Knife Murderer. I mean, not, not that broad, but.
0: Yeah, you have a good point.
1: And while I don't know how much of it is like hitchhiking in itself was very dangerous, or if it's just everyone was hitchhiking in the same way that like I don't know today when we look at car accidents, they're not as like unique of a thing because everyone drives if that makes sense
0: right well, I think a one perspective you can look at it is with hitchhiking being a mode of transportation in like the 60s and 70s it gave killers an opportunity to easily grab people easily kidnap people Mm -hmm. and easily murder them you can almost like say it's equivalent to uh, one thing that's interesting like you talk about don't get into strangers cars well what do we do all the time with rideshare technically Mm -hmm. that's a stranger yes it is recorded like people know who you're riding with, like the information is there. So it is a little bit different, but at the same time, you're still getting into a stranger's car. It's like yeah, hitchhiking with technology added. It's ordering it. Yeah. Uh, it's It's a way for a hitchhiker to order the car.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair.
0: And I'm not saying rideshare is super unsafe. I mean, it can be, we have done rideshare murders, but at the same time, pretty much every situation we are in every single day, day in and day out, could be a dangerous situation. That's what I've learned the last two and a half years is that like pretty much any moment is a moment that murder can happen.
1: Yeah. So the sources I used in my case, an article from the Harvard Crimson, which is the Harvard College newspaper by Henry W. McGee, an article in Boston Magazine by Chris Vogel and S.I. Rosenbaum. The book, 50 American Serial Killers You've Probably Never Heard of, Volume 4, by Robert Keller. An article in the New York Times, but it was like an archive one, and I could not find the author. And then the Murderpedia page for Anthony J. Jackson. So in late 1972, the hitchhike murders, they gripped Boston area colleges. The killer claimed his first two victims in late September of 1972, when he murdered 18-year-old Kathleen Randall just one week after she'd enrolled at Boston University.
0: Oh my god, one week?
1: One week. She was last seen, like, hitchhiking, thumbing rides near campus, and two weeks later she was found. She'd been raped and then strangled to death in, like, a rural part of New Hampshire, Two days after Kathleen disappeared, 19-year-old Deborah Stevens was raped and strangled to death in Lynn, Massachusetts, and her body was disposed of just 50 yards away from her home.
0: Wow. You can, like, see 50 yards, can't you?
1: Yeah, that's 150 feet.
0: Oh, my God.
1: His third victim was Ellen Reich. Ellen was a typical Boston student. She was a 19 year old sophomore at Emerson College. She liked school, and pretty much every morning, her and her roommate would thumb a ride and hitchhike to college. It was about two miles away from their apartment there in Back Bay, and so it was just their habit. I mean, in the exact same way of like catching a school bus or hopping on the subway. Yeah, that's just how they thumbed a ride to someone who was driving that way and hopped in. But on November 9th, her roommate, I'm not sure if she was sick or what, but oh. Ellen was hitchhiking alone that day. Yeah. And that was the last day her roommate ever saw her. Four days later, her body was found. She'd been strangled and stabbed. And then her body had been placed in a closet in this like abandoned tenement apartment in Roxbury. Oh my god. And the closet door had been nailed shut.
0: How was her body found?
1: I have no idea.
0: Because I mean, maybe it was the, the sorry, this is graphic. Maybe it was like the smell of decomposing flesh. Yeah.
1: I mean it might have been it might have been that like just this unit in the apartment was abandoned and like the neighbors yeah like could smell the decomp. i'm not sure
0: that is so insane to go through that that's an interesting way of disposing of a body and hiding it yeah you know because we talk about bodies hidden like inside houses and in the walls but this is different but in like a very i don't know how did you expect no one would find that kind of thing
1: Yeah. Well, I I think not, I think people not finding her wasn't really the point, but I'm also not sure because she was dead when her body was placed there. So I'm not sure then the point of like nailing the door shut.
0: I don't see the point in that either then.
1: I mean, maybe it was just adding an extra step of delay in finding her, not necessarily making it to where people never would, but just they wouldn't. In, like, a short time
0: span. Right, just one extra step. Oh my god, poor Ellen. And her roommate, yeah. I'm sure, beat herself up about not being with her. Because I'm sure the thought I of, if I'd have just been there, she wouldn't have been a Target, because she wouldn't have been alone. Or they both could have fallen victim. You never know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't... That survivor's guilt is such a huge thing. It is. But I feel like it is only ever really talked about it like the surface level, but you can't blame yourself for doing something or not being there and something happening to someone. No. Um, the other day I was watching RuPaul's Drag Race, and on one of the seasons, it was the season they filmed just about a month after the Pulse massacre in Orlando. Right. And a lot of the queens had either started at Pulse. Or had played there before. And one of them was talking about how she was supposed to perform that night. But her schedule got mixed around. And so she was going to perform like a week later. And that night one of her friends texted her and was like, Hey, I'm here. Where are you? And she was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not performing tonight. Are you going to go home? I'm sorry. And he was like, Oh no, I'll stay. And he wound up being killed by the shooter. And just to see them have like that honest conversation of like you know it's not her friend was there to see her and died because he was, he was there but it's not her fault and it's not that is just that survivor's guilt thing is such a crazy part of it that i think too often we don't really think about
0: no and we've never really talked about survivor guilt but i know in so many of our cases that has been an aspect and in so Mm. many documentaries we watch it's always that why wasn't it me and Mm -hmm. i hope people know it's not their fault
1: no it never is the only person who's at fault is the murderer yes because it's not just a Well, if you had been there, you could have also been a victim, because you can't live your life having to say, well, I always need to be next to them, or I can't ever be late to picking up a friend or going to a party because something could happen and I was supposed to be there, and you can't focus on that, because it's not your fault. It's the fault of the killer and the monster who's doing this, and that's always who's at fault.
0: Yes, 100%.
1: So the next of the Boston hitchhike murder victims was just two weeks after Ellen's body was found. This was Sanda Aramshin. She was 21 years old, and she fairly recently dropped out of college. She's working as a cab driver. According to her ex-roommate, she had started hitchhiking home because she wanted to see her parents. They lived in East Meadow, New York, so she was hitchhiking basically from Boston to New York State. And she was never heard from again. Her body was found in a culvert near Waldo Lake in a park in Brockton, which is a Boston suburb. So she didn't even make it that far out of Boston. It was basically the person who picked her up first. Right. Was the murderer. And her autopsy showed that she'd also been raped and strangled. And one thing to note, I don't know a ton, ton about this case, but about I think it was eight years before this, was the Boston Strangler.
0: Right, that was in the 60s, and man, so Boston has just been scared for a long time.
1: Yeah, and those had ended by this, but this other serial murderer popping up who's also strangling his victims and stuff, I mean, the city is in panic.
0: Did they think it was maybe the same person?
1: I don't think so, and I don't know if it's because, like, they thought they knew who the Boston Strangler was, or if there was just like, it was too different, but I don't think they thought it was the same person. Yeah,
0: just too similar, too close to home.
1: Yeah. The most publicized of the murders was that of Damaris Singe Gillespie. She was a 22-year-old senior honors student at Boston University, and she lived in an apartment in Cambridge, not far from Sandra. I don't think they knew each other, but the victim that was murdered just before her didn't live that far from her. Right. She was last seen on November 29th when she left her apartment to go to her job. She was a cocktail waitress at a nightclub there in Boston called the Jazz Workshop, and so she was going to grab a ride to work, going to hitchhike to work. And I think it's interesting because I didn't realize until you and I had talked about it in depth, but... When you said earlier that, you know, hitchhiking is a mode of transportation, it literally is. Yeah. I mean, it literally is like, oh, do I grab the bus or do I hitchhike? Like, oh, the bus isn't going to be here for seven minutes. I'll, like, thumb a ride. And that's just part of it. I mean, all of these college students who don't have cars and they're living in Boston, that's how they get to work or get to class every day. Like, it's literally just another form of travel
0: i know and that is so crazy for us to look at from our 2020 lens because we would never imagine doing something like that because Ooh. of cases like this
1: yeah i mean it would never cross my mind because i think it's even not really comparable to like using rideshare like uber and lyft no it's really not you're right Be- well because those i'm i'm talking about like the frequency because we used to use Uber and Lyft a lot. Right. But also, that costs money and hitchhiking doesn't. So I imagine it was even more common. Yeah. But Demaris, she hitchhiked to work and she never made it to work. When she didn't come home from work the next day, her roommates were like, Where is she? This is not like her. And they called her parents. So her parents got together with the Cambridge police, and they started a very intensive all-out manhunt for her that lasted three weeks. Her family and friends also manned a 24-hour hotline that was just set up in their apartment. Like, in their apartment in Cambridge, they set up this 24-hour hotline for any tips, anything, and they covered the Boston area with more than 20,000 posters and leaflets that describe her and asked anyone who'd seen her or had any information to call the hotline. They also even set up a information desk for any information about her in the Boston University student union.
0: Were the other victims just discovered quickly and that's why nothing like this happened for them?
1: I think yeah, a lot of them were discovered within a, just a few days, but I don't know. I mean her roommates and parents are really like leading this charged to find her
0: yeah it definitely sounds like they had the resources to be able to put this together
1: yeah and the hotline it almost paid off because the killer he called into it multiple times
0: identifying himself as the killer
1: yeah and he would i mean remember the people on the other end are her friends her roommates and family yeah that he's talking to he sounded as if he was in his like late 20s or early 30s, and he made his first call on December 6th, which was about a week after she disappeared. And then he made five more calls that day and the next day, and he described in detail some of like her personal affects and just different parts of everything. The police were certain, like, oh, he's the one who
0: murdered her. So he wasn't saying things like, I did it, or he was, and they just were like, oh, is this a trickster, or is this really him?
1: Yeah. Oh, And then when God. he started describing everything in detail, they were like, oh, shit, no, it is him. And pretty soon, the newspapers, they picked up the story on the caller, and the call stopped. So her family believed that the stories and the newspaper and how much they were publishing about him, they scared the murderer off, and- She may have even been alive still and just being held captive. But after these stories and the calls stopped, that's when she was murdered.
0: Do they know that for sure with like time of death or do they just think that? Or is it sometimes it's hard to tell?
1: I think it's just hard to tell because on December 8th, that was when the calls stopped. And the search continued for a long time. And it continued until February 5th.
0: Oh, wow. Because
1: that's when her body was found. So I don't know if they're able to figure out was she killed when the call stopped or was she killed a week earlier when she disappeared.
0: Right. Once you get that much time, I can see why it would be difficult to pinpoint a day.
1: So the hitchhike murders, they had a very strong impact on the travel habits of many women in the Boston
0: area. As I can imagine, That's horrifying. If that's how you were getting to work, you're suddenly presented with this, oh, shit, maybe I don't need to get to work that way because it's happened to multiple women. Yeah. Or class. Like, maybe I don't need to get to class that way.
1: I mean, just knowing that, like, there's this now string of murders that are happening and all the victims, what they have in common is this extremely common form of transport. Like, yeah. The Harvard Crimson, the newspaper... They actually interviewed some students in the area, and one of them, Bianca, who's a student at Boston University, she said, There are definitely fewer people hitching, and girls have stopped hitching altogether. Every morning, there used to be more than half a dozen girls who'd stand outside the dorm and hitch a ride to class, but they've all stopped now.
0: It's also really interesting to think about the type of people that would pick people up, you know? And and not all of them bad, obviously, But just thinking of the types of people that were like, like, I wonder if you hitched every day to go to class, if sometimes you had the same person, and then why don't you arrange some type of carpool thing like I just, and again, it's hard for me to look at hitchhiking as a form of transportation, because our entire lives, it has been an absolute no, no, you don't hitchhike, you don't pick up hitchhikers. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay.
1: What episode was that when I told that story? Like episode four?
0: Something like that. You horrified our entire family.
1: Yep, yep. Definitely had to answer questions about that. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, if you haven't uh, heard it, I picked up a hitchhiker and drove him across state lines once. It was a lot. It was a bad idea, but I survived.
0: Do not follow Tyler's example. Don't do it. Like I was saying, it's hard for me to put my mind into a perspective of that being okay. Just imagining that group of people outside the dorms getting rides i'm like who's picking you up like is this just a thing it was that's it was just a thing i mean
1: you mentioned like before maybe having the same kind of people but i don't think so because i think it's it would be so common to see someone hitching a ride being like i'm going two miles this way and you're like okay that's on my way hopping and that's what a lot of drivers did
0: yeah. So it's also from this other perspective of not only hitching the ride, but also picking up hitchhikers that that was okay. You yeah. were just helping someone get a couple miles down the road.
1: And also, I think there's a perceived level of it safer being the driver because you can kind of see who you're picking up right, and decide to pick them up. Whereas if you're the hitchhiker, it's kind of, and you can still obviously, if someone pulls up, you're like, oh, not you, but that would be more difficult. But I think a lot of it's a lot more of a perceived safety. Because there's countless stories of people who've picked up hitchhikers who've then murdered them.
0: Yeah, I know. It's a scary business. Don't do it. That's why you don't do it now. You just don't do it.
1: So three more young women would be murdered before police eventually got a lead on 33-year-old Anthony Jackson. So on December 26th, Anthony Jackson was arrested after a high-speed chase and an actual shootout that he had with police in Cambridge, he was booked on charges of assault with a deadly weapon, operating an automobile to endanger, and illegal possession of firearms. Then they also noticed his blood-soaked Cadillac. It wasn't the car he was driving, but he'd stored it at a junkyard in Brockton. And they looked at that and they were like, oh, this is a murder scene. And he was actually indicted on Demaris's murder on February 3rd of 1973. So a lot of the evidence... It eluded police in several of the cases, but they had this. They had his blood-soaked candillac, and they had stuff tying him to Demaris' murder. And investigators also noted that these murders suddenly stopped when he was arrested.
0: That's a sign for sure.
1: All of his victims were young. All of them were strangled. Four of them had been dumped in the woods. Three of the women had received sharp blows. And three of them were students at Boston University. Three of them lived in Cambridge. Jackson was found guilty on three counts of murder and was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences.
0: Good. I mean, there were more victims, but I'm glad it was more than yeah. just one he was convicted on.
1: And so that's that's one of the things in this case that was difficult to find a lot of information on because he was convicted on three and I don't know how much evidence for each of them there was right. like for the other victims. So not 100% sure on that. But that is the case of the hitchhike murderer.
0: I'm so glad that it was solved. Because mm-hmm. with hitchhike murders, there's so much opportunity to never know who did it.
1: There really is.
0: I've never heard of this one. This happened in the 70s when so much was going on, but I totally get why. He was one in that, like, serial killers you've never heard of. Because, yeah, never fucking heard of this. That's seven victims.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a case that I'm like, the detailed stuff of what I got, how is this not a huge one that everyone knows? I know. So, Brittany, what hitchhiker murder case are you doing?
0: I'm doing the Santa Rosa hitchhiker murders. And the sources I used, the website santa rosa hitchhiker murders dot com which oh. <laughs> I know this website was created by Deborah Silva in two thousand nine, and this is where I got the majority of all of my research because she has compiled all of the information. There are clips from every single newspaper article that was published around the time that this was happening in California. I just clicked through and read every single one of them, so My sources are actually like really, really vast, but I'm going to source it with her website because she's the one that compiled all of this information, not me. Also, a couple episodes of the Murder Squad podcast by Paul Holes and Billy Jensen. Some of you guys who listen to My Favorite Murder have probably heard of this podcast and have probably heard of Paul Holes and Billy Jensen, but they have a podcast that they put together and essentially... Paul Holes is a retired detective. I think he's retired. I'm pretty sure he's retired. And Billy Jensen is an author. He was friends with Michelle McNamara and helped finish her book after her death. And they, their goal of this podcast is to try to solve unsolved crimes. Like, they're really using podcasting as a resource for information. And it's amazing. And then I also used an article in the Daily Mail. Between 1972 and 1973, Santa Rosa, California, experienced the killings of seven women whose murders have never been solved. There was an eighth and probable victim that disappeared, and her body was never found. All of the victims were known to hitchhike, which, like we've talked about time and time again, was a popular mode of transportation. And these murders became known as the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders. On March 5th, 1972, two high school students discovered a nude body of a woman in a creek bed about eight miles from Santa Rosa. First glance, her identity was unknown, as was her cause of death, but she appeared to be between the ages of 18 to 24, she was about 5'6", and had light brown or strawberry blonde hair. Police believed that she was killed elsewhere and brought to this location, and that she had been dumped over the 20-foot embankment. She appeared to have been dead for about 24 hours, and after her autopsy was done, it was discovered that she had been tortured and slowly strangled to asphyxiation with a cord or a wire around her throat, and that it took about 30 minutes. Oh my god. Which is unimaginable. I mean,
1: I know, and I think we've talked about it before, about how strangling someone is not quick like you see in TV and the movies, of it being just a couple minutes. I mean, it takes a while but God, just to think about 30 minutes of it.
0: 30 minutes of struggling to breathe. It was also determined that she had been raped, and she had markings on her wrist and ankles from wire as if she'd been tied up. Five days after her discovery, she was identified as Kim Wendy Allen, who's 19 years old. She was a Santa Rosa Junior College student, and her roommates and sister, were the ones who made the identification. Kim was last seen around 5pm on the night of her murder, hitchhiking from Luxburg to Santa Rosa. Kim was described by her fellow classmates as someone who was a bit difficult to know, but that her passions really shined when she was talking about things that she really loved or was really interested in. And She was always happy. But she was just one of those, you know, just a little bit hard to get to know. On April 27th, 1972... Another SRJC co-ed went missing, 20-year-old Jeanette Kamahili. She was last seen just a couple of days prior hitchhiking to class. Her roommate reported her missing when she never showed up home, and to this day, her body's never been found. She's still technically missing.
1: Still, after 50 years.
0: I was about to say 30, but you're right, it is 50 years. So December 14th, we're fast-forwarding towards the end of the year, December 14th, 1972,
1: Oh, I guess I didn't realize your case is happening at the exact same time mine is.
0: The exact same time.
1: Because mine was September to December of 1972.
0: Yeah, and mine started in March of 72. So December 14th, another body of a woman was found 30 feet off of Calistoga Road down another steep embankment. And it was determined that she died at the scene between December 1st and 8th and she was identified as 13-year-old Lori Lee Cursa. She had dislocated a vertebrae near her neck, which could have contributed to her death. She had apparently run away from home on November 11th and was staying with a friend. She was known as a frequent... What's the word? Runaway. Runaway. There you go. It was difficult for people to determine an exact date of her death because her body had frozen in the recent cold temperatures, which preserves the body and there's less decay. But it also means you, you can't really tell when they died. That's why there's a week span. Yeah. After her autopsy, it was determined that the dislocation of the first and second cervical vertebrae with compression and hemorrhage of the spinal cord um, due to trauma was the cause of her death.
1: That's, I mean, C1 and C2, those are like... The
0: ones connecting your head on, right?
1: Yeah, I think those are your top two vertebrae. Like the ones that really aren't even in your neck yet.
0: Yeah. So just a few days after, on December 26th, Two teenage boys were hiking in Franz Valley when they discovered the remains of what appeared to be at least two bodies. They saw a couple of skulls. The bones were down a steep embankment in a heavily bushy area, and they were spread out, so they had to be collected and sorted. And when the search began, there was they had no idea how long the bones had been there. The site also had multiple holes, like freshly brought up earth and deer bones, so a full-on excavation had to be done to determine if there were more bodies in the area, what bones were deer and animal, what bones were human. And they found a couple of pieces of evidence also at the scene. There was a gold earring and a gold chain cross necklace found near the bodies. A pathologist was able to examine the bones and determine that they belonged to two young women that had been deceased for about six months. The bodies were identified through dental records as Santa Rosa women who had been missing since February 4th. And I said women, but they were girls. Yvonne Weber, who was 13, and Maureen Sterling, who was 12. Oh my
1: god, they're babies.
0: They're babies. And they had last been seen getting into a car in front of the Redwood Empire Ice Arena. And so, like, one of the parents dropped them off to go skating came back and they were not there
1: oh so they weren't even like i don't know trying to get a ride back like parent was going to come pick them up and then they weren't there anymore
0: from what we know of the story yeah who knows i mean oh. they could have left in the in between like obviously they walked out of the ice rink at some point in time to yeah. go somewhere else
1: i mean shit it might have been hey we want to go get some sodas
0: oh yeah i can
1: drive you to the 711 down the street
0: I know, and they disappeared one month before the discovery of Kim Allen's body, the first victim. And the circumstances were also very similar to the discovery of Lori Curse's body. Then, six months into the future. <laughs> That's so weird, I, know. <laughs> I know. I know, I hated it. A bit. All right, doctor. <laughs>
1: God, what a doctor who just took a fucking left turn and started doing cases like this.
0: Six months later, in July 1973, another body was discovered in the exact same location as Yvonne and Maureen. That is extremely ballsy by this killer.
1: He went back and disposed of their body after this area had been, like, excavated completely. He's using the same spot?
0: Exactly. The exact same spot. Which... That is something that I feel like is really ballsy because how do you know that they're not watching that area? I mean, I know it's been six months and obviously they weren't.
1: Well, and also, how do you know you're not going to run into like a couple of forensic analysts who are like still, you know. Checking it out. They're coming back to the spot to check it. Yeah. To look for other evidence. I mean, oh my God.
0: And because of this, it was determined that these three women had been murdered by the same person. This was also a stretch of road that was not known by many people. This was not a well-traveled thoroughfare. Like, this person clearly knew the area and knew of this spot. Pathologists were unable to determine her cause of death due to the decomposition of her body, but they did estimate that she had been deceased for about two weeks. She was later identified, I believe, by dental records as Carolyn Davis. She was 15 years old. And she had run away from home on February 6th, so much earlier in the year, but she had been last seen on July 15th hitchhiking on Highway 101 on the ramp for Garberville, California.
1: Um, Highway 101 is the highway I took in California.
0: Yeah. It goes all the way up the West Coast, right?
1: Highway 101 is the one I took from San Francisco up to like Grants Pass, Oregon. It's the Redwood Highway.
0: Then you definitely passed this because Santa Rosa is north of San Francisco.
1: Yeah. Santa Rosa is like the last big town going north from San Francisco. We absolutely drove through Santa Rosa. I think we got coffee. Sorry, this whole time, I don't know what I've been picturing. I've been picturing Southern California.
0: Yeah, it's Northern California.
1: This is the Redwoods. I don't know. I just did not expect that, like, oh, this road where, like, a lot of these women and girls were picked up from, I have driven that one.
0: It's so weird when our lives intersect with horrific crimes. Yeah. And you're just in a similar area or in a similar situation. It's scary, to be honest.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, that road's terrifying enough because it's, I mean, it really is. The second it gets dark... I mean, it's pitch black and curvy in trees, and that's it. And it's a good-sized highway, but there's also not a ton of cars on it. And I cannot imagine how many fewer cars there were in the 70s on it.
0: Yeah. After they did a lot of testing, it was determined that her cause of death was strychnine poisoning. And this also determined that her murder could have been premeditated. Not necessarily in the she was the specific victim, but in the... The way this killer was going to kill their next victim was going to be by strychnine poisoning.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something you'd have to get ahead of it. And it's not a, like, oh, I just happen to have this for some other reason. Let me use this. I mean, right? that's murder.
0: Strychnine was used in combination with some drugs like heroin, etc. But there was there were no drugs found in her system, and they couldn't determine if the drug or if the poison had been injected or orally taken. But it was one of the two. And strychnine poisoning is one of your extremely brutal, gruesome poisonings. It's not a good way to go. It's torture.
1: I mean, it sounds like basically swallowing drain cleaner.
0: Yeah, I I feel like the most horrific poisoning death you can picture, that's what strychnine does. On December 28th, 1973, so six more months later, the nude body of a young woman was found in Mark West Creek in a deep canyon, making her the sixth nude woman found in the last two years in Sonoma County and the fourth in this Mark West, Franz Valley area. Her body was half submerged in the water. It looked as if she had been deceased about a week. She had been hogtied with a nylon rope with her hands tied in front of her and pulled down between her legs. Her feet were tied and pulled back by a rope that was also tightened around her neck, which strangled her to death. Additionally, she had a blow to the back of her head. But her official cause of death was strangulation. And that's the horrific kind where you're doing it to yourself, but there's nothing you can do about it.
1: Yeah, your struggling is strangling you.
0: There's no way to get out of it.
1: That is... I don't even have words to respond to your case. This is horrifying.
0: She was later identified as Therese Walsh, who was 23, and she had been missing since December 13th, so a couple weeks prior. So in July 1979, so this is a few years, like six years in the future. Why do I keep fucking saying that?
1: So Six years.
0: Six years later, the body of a Jane Doe was discovered and they pointed to a very violent, tortured death, much like the victims that we talked about previously. She'd been tied up similarly, similarly to how Walsh was hogtied and as- asphyxiated. Additionally, evidence indicated that maybe she was also shoved into a duffel bag before she was dumped. And it looked like rope had been tied around her so many times that it indicated she could have possibly still been alive when her killer threw her down the embankment. He had to make sure and tie her up really, really well so there was no risk of her ever escaping. Her bones indicated that she was in her late teens, And at the site, they also found teeth and a hard contact lens, which they hoped that it would aid in her identification. Jane Doe was originally determined not to have been the missing Jeanette Kamahili because there was some missing dental work. I think she had like a bridge and this wasn't on that body. But as of October 2009, DNA testing was being sought to make sure That she was not Jeanette, but at this point in time, she's still Jane Doe. She's unidentified. So here's the big question that we're all thinking. Who the fuck did this? Yeah. So as I stated at the beginning, unfortunately, this case is unsolved. But there have been a few suspects, and I'm going to go into a couple of them. There have been others. It has been a long time. This case is technically still open and active. But I'm just going to go into two really big ones. And I will say, we've talked about it before, how sometimes you will try to shoehorn in some unsolved cases into another serial killer just to get them solved. So that's also a layer of this that we do have to keep in the back of our minds. But the first suspect was a Zodiac killer. He was active in Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s. And this theory started in 1975. So when you first look at it, it may seem like a what? but it's really not as far-fetched as it sounds.
1: Okay, well, because as you could tell by my facial expression, I'm like, okay, similar times and in Northern California,
0: that's not a lot. So in his very last letter to the police, the Zodiac killer said that he was going to continue to kill, but that he was going to vary his techniques. And he also talked about like having slaves for the afterlife, how he was collecting people to be his slaves in the afterlife. So in the Franz Valley, where three of the victims were found, Yvonne, Maureen, and Carolyn, they also found a symbol on the ground and it was made from sticks. And it was a witchcraft symbol that was one that was used to hurry spirits along into the afterlife However, there were a lot of people that did not believe it could be the Zodiac, because his murders, they did not involve rape, they did not involve nudity, or dumping victims into the, like, off of roadways. And so, even though he said he was going to vary his technique, this M.O. did not seem like it was his. And during their investigation into this theory, it actually leads us into the second suspect.
1: Oh, is, is that all they have for the Zodiac?
0: I'm about to explain why I didn't go into it more. You'll understand.
1: Okay, because I was about to be like, oh,
0: yeah, no, still not convinced. So, there's this one article that, listeners, if I could beg you to go to any type of resource and read through things, it would be the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker com that Deborah Silva has put together, because this collection of information is unlike anything I've ever experienced. So, there's an article from 1975 april 1975 and it's titled is zodiac slaying young women and so i'm reading this as i'm doing my research into why they think maybe this was zodiac and i'm looking at all of these other bodies that are being discovered of young women who have been strangled and raped and they're in washington and they're in utah and they're in colorado And my true crime brain is freaking the fuck out because it is goddamn Ted Bundy. Yes. And when this article was written, they did not know Ted Bundy had committed a lot of those murders across all of these different states. This was one of those moments where I was like, I need to read articles from like newspapers during the times of these crimes because everything they're saying, it totally makes sense. They were like- This is Zodiac. He was active in Northern California. He came to Santa Rosa and then he went up into Washington. And then we've got these bizarre cases in Colorado, but they're fit in a similar M.O. And I will say, and maybe this is a like point in my mind where I was like, I never made the connection that Zodiac and Ted Bundy were active around similar times. I always think of Zodiac for some reason as being so much earlier, but he wasn't.
1: Yeah, I guess if you ask me, like, what decades? I'm like, yeah, Zodiac, 60s, Ted Bundy, 70s. But it's, like, late 60s into 70s and 70s. But, yeah, to me, Zodiac feels like 20 years before Ted Bundy. Even though I know it's not.
0: Same. And so, I'm freaking out at this moment. Reading these articles.
1: Thinking you just solved it.
0: No, not thinking I just solved it. But thinking, holy shit, where's this information? So, I literally Google were the Ted Bundy murders ever attributed to Zodiac originally? And I couldn't find anything. And so I'm like, okay. And so I read this other article and it's, you know, Lawman React, Zodiac Theory Doubted. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But in this, there's a map. And it's literally a map that shows San Francisco, Zodiac, Santa Rosa, Seattle, Salt Lake City, Grand Junction, Santa Fe, Aspen, Vale. Not all of those are Bundy. But most of them are. Yeah. And it's just one of those moments where it's only a moment that those of us who know what, like, what this ended up being can react to. Because it's like when you're reading, terrible example, but it's like when you're reading a novel or watching a movie and you know something that the main characters don't. And you're like, oh my god, it's not what you think at all. It's something else. It's someone different. You guys, this case blew my mind. I'm sure you can tell. Uh, Yeah. So, there's more. So, our second suspect is Ted Bundy. Robert Keppel, who was a retired Seattle police detective famous for investigating the murders, he actually interviewed Ted Bundy several times. And he very much considers Bundy a good suspect for the Santa Rosa cases. And he said, The killings in Santa Rosa would fit his methods, he spent time in the area, and I'm sure he started killing well before 1974. It was an open market for Bundy. Bundy has been very open that he started killing before 74. These are in his transcripts, like things that he said, especially after he was arrested.
1: But we just don't know. We don't have any cases connected to him before then. Right.
0: Keppel also recalled that one of the last times he talked to Bundy, he mentioned California. And Bundy looked at him and he said, I can't talk about this right now. So one thing I do want to say, this is why we shouldn't execute people. One of the reasons, of many. Keppel mentioned that it seemed like Bundy thought he would get his third stay of execution. And that he would have opportunity to talk about all these other murders later. Because if you listen to an episode we did way earlier, I covered Ted Bundy. And when it was coming towards like his execution date, he started talking. And it was obviously to try to not be executed. But he finally started admitting to all of these murders. Some that he was tied to, some that he wasn't. But there was no doubt that he was speaking truth. He wasn't just spouting shit to try to save his life. He was confessing. Ted Bunny had also mentioned he killed in California. So what if he hadn't have been executed? How many more murders could have been solved?
1: Yeah, whoa. I did not think that's where this case was going.
0: Oh, I know. I didn't either. When I got to the point of my research and this started coming up, my mind was literally blown. I was like, "I'm sorry. How is how is this happening and how did I not already know about this?" So in March 1989, all of the law enforcement officers involved in the Bundy case, from his last confessions to the investigation into his murders, attended the Bundy Multi-Agency Investigative Team Conference at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. The goal of this was to come together with all of the information that everyone had and attempt to determine if more unsolved cases could be linked to Bundy. As we know, Bundy's admitted to 30 murders, but his actuals could be in the hundreds. 30 is just what he ended up confessing to. But like I was just saying, he was cut off before he was done, clearly. yeah, Bundy was around the Santa Rosa area and during this time period, visiting his girlfriend and going to school. He was in San Francisco from July 13th through 15th in 1973. And Carolyn was last seen on July 15th. Bundy was leaving the San Francisco area going north. And what did we just talk about? Oh, yeah, Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco. She went missing on the day he'd left.
1: Well, and it's how you go north. Because it's not like oh, well, you have the option to take the Five. Like, the Five goes through Sacramento. If you're in in San Francisco and you go north, you're getting on the 101.
0: There is currently no direct evidence that is linking Bundy to any of these crimes. But this is definitely something to be looked into more. Now, Deborah, who has done all of the research on the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders, she doesn't believe that Ted Bundy did it. She's worried that they're just trying to fit these murders in Because it's similar to his his MO, and they just want to be done with it. And to be fair, your MO, like your killer, was doing similar things. So I get her point. Yeah. uh, Please don't say
1: my MO. Um, I
0: said your killer's MO.
1: (laughs) I know, but you said your MO, or your killer's MO. (laughs) Sorry. Didn't like that. But one of the things you mentioned at the beginning of your case is that it was clear that whoever was doing these killings was very familiar with the Santa Rosa area and knew these back roads and was very familiar with everything. Bundy lives in Seattle. And even if he's going to school down in the area, he's not a local. I feel like your killer almost has to be local to the Santa Rosa area and have like either grown up there or lived there for decades.
0: Or did he just stumble upon this area once and realized that it was a back road that not many people took it? And went there again and again. Because, I say this I because mean, Ted Bundy, he disposed of a lot of his bodies on Taylor Mountain in the same area. That is
1: that is true.
0: So, but these are the types of conversations that are being had. And if you're interested in looking at this whole report from this conference at Quantico, which to me is one of those things that I'm like, oh my god, I'm so glad they did this. Why don't they do this more often? Do they? Maybe they do. And we just don't know about it. But that's real smart. It's on Deborah's website. You can read the report and it has their like four page report at the beginning, like the summary, the executive summary. And then it goes into the confessions that Ted Bundy did. It goes into all of his pseudonyms that he used, his fake socials, all the cars he had. And so it's like a whole like compilation of his life. And then you get to the timeline and it starts with his birth and his, you know, younger years. There's not very much information, just like where his family moved around. But then you start to see his gas receipts and where he would get gas, checks he wrote, when he was in school, when the abductions were happening, when he would return to the sites to maybe remove evidence or something like that. And it creates this entire timeline all the way till his death. And it's really weird because you can literally look at it and there's a span of like gas receipt in Seattle, gas receipt in Olympia, gas receipt here, gas receipt here. And it's just very weird to see that level of detailed information on a serial killer. But that's how you can look and see where his whereabouts were. And you can see that he was in San Francisco on July 15th in 73. So in December 2019, there was a new lead in this case. So like I mentioned, the Murder Squad podcast with Paul Holes and Billy Jensen, that I use as one of my sources, they did an episode in May 2019 about Ted Bundy being a possible suspect in the Santa Rosa murders. Because like I said, their goal is to solve unsolved murders. And Paul Holes was heavily involved in the Golden State Killer case. If, If you don't know that name, that is one of the ones that he was really, really one of the main players in. So he knows California. And one of their listeners actually provided a new lead. So on February 4th, 1972, when Yvonne and Maureen went to the Redwood Empire Ice Arena, like many of the other friends at their school, one of their fellow students and friend, Mary, remembered that night. She wrote into Jensen and Holes and she shared what she saw. Mary says that she was invited by Yvonne and Maureen to go smoke pot with an older man in the grove next to the ice skating rink. Mary said, no thanks, like, I'm good, I don't want to do that. But she said she got a decent look at the guy. He had dark hair, he looked in his 20s, he was very slender, and he clearly didn't belong at the arena. He wasn't there to skate. This was the last time that she ever saw Yvonne and Maureen. And Mary says the police came to the school after the two young teens disappeared. And according to Mary, the police just wanted to know where the girls would have gone, not if she saw anything. You also have to remember, she's like 12 or 13 years old. So if the police are like, where'd the girls go? She's like, I don't know. She's not going to have that foresight to be like, but this is what I saw. Yeah. So after all of these years, Mary says the man she saw that night before her friends disappeared resembled a young Ted Bundy. She hopes that now by coming forward and giving this information, that maybe others who were there that night might also want to come forward with information. Oh my god. That's the Santa Rosa hitchhiker murders. That's where it ends? That's where it ends. It's still unsolved. Because the thing about the Murder Squad podcast, like, this is, this is them doing their own investigation, you know? Yeah. It's not necessarily law enforcement doing it. And as much as we like to think these things are quick, they're not, obviously.
1: No, no. But, I mean, I still am not convinced in any way that Zodiac- Me either. Was a part of it. Me either. But Bundy? I mean, I feel like I would want to, like, go in and literally cross-reference, like, every, like, possible missing date and, like, murder date they have of the victims being like okay can we find a gas receipt was he in Seattle when she went missing so okay no that doesn't line up or is it gonna be a oh well here's a gas receipt from Redding California the day before he might have been in the area
0: well and that's the thing they do they have done some of that cross-reference and there are some receipts that don't seem to line up But I'm just going to say with how many people Ted Bundy killed and the fact that you can pay for gas with cash and that's untraceable because these were all like card or check transactions.
1: But there's also the thought of, I mean, my case was had very many similarities, was definitely not the same person. Who's to say that there weren't multiple different murderers? That happened to be murdering hitchhikers in the Santa Rosa area, and it's not related. Some of these cases are attributed to different people.
0: Exactly. And that's the thing. Unfortunately, it seems like these hitchhiker murderers have a lot of similarities. And that's what Deborah was saying. She feels like they're just trying to shoehorn this into Bundy for an easy explanation. I mean, not necessarily easy, but for an explanation to get them solved.
1: Well, because... In that case, they can be like, job well done, we already caught him, he's gone, we didn't fail, we did bring them justice already. It's an easy explanation and a comforting one, because the the evil, the person who did this, they're already taken care of.
0: And then there's the flip side of something like Golden State Killer that gets solved so many years down the road. You know, so it's not a lost cause and it's not an explanation. No. Like Like I said, no. at this point in time... Other than what Mary said, and that is also a witness statement, so it's not necessarily evidence, but at this point in time, there's no evidence actually linking Bundy. Just because he happened to be in the area, that's circumstantial, Mm -hmm. and we've talked about that time and time again.
1: I mean, lots of people are in the area. It's a town. People live there. And he
0: had reason to be down there. People visit. He was visiting his girlfriend. So I just thought it was a really crazy turn that I didn't know this was going to take. And like Deborah, I hope that they still seek other potential suspects and don't just hone in on this Bundy thing. Don't have tunnel vision on that. Yeah, I think one of the most, and I'm going to use the word exciting because for me, it was just like a holy shit moment, is that article I read from 1975 when they were like, is this Zodiac? And it's clearly Bundy. And I just was going crazy. Well,
1: you making the connection on your own, having that like investigator light bulb moment of like oh, shit, no, I'm seeing what's going on, and y'all have no idea. Well, and
0: I will say, that wasn't in my research. I was not able to find anything that said, like, oh, yeah, Bundy's murders used to maybe have thought to be by Zodiac. I couldn't find any of that. But I literally, this is when I went into, like, cross-reference mode, and I was opening all these tabs, looking at dates, and I was like, locations, and And everything in this article was matching up to Bundy's. And I was like, oh, my God, that was Bundy. And it just added this other layer of...
1: Was this when you called
0: me? Yeah, this is when I called you and told you I needed more time because I was freaking out. But I wasn't going to tell you why. Yes. Okay. But it it just adds another layer into this is why they, they weren't able to catch Bundy sooner. Because... Again, it was the fucking 70s and so many people were being murdered and Zodiac was a huge thing on the West Coast. And so finding all of these bodies in Seattle, could that have been Zodiac? I mean, he told the police he was going to move and like change and do something different. Like, was that him?
1: I mean, did he just take the five north? It's a one really long day's travel. Yeah. But that's it.
0: Well, and that's the other thing. Like when we think about Did Ted Bundy do some, if not all, of the Santa Rosa murders? How often did he have to fill up? Was this one of the things where he filled up in Seattle on his card to establish an alibi? And then drove south to California, filling up along the way as needed with cash? And then, you know, a few days later, he was back in Seattle filling up with gas again. Who the fuck knows what he did in between that? According to his gas receipts, he was in Seattle the whole time.
1: Well, and also, I mean, Bundy is not someone who looks noticeable no it's like oh this yeah dark-haired white guy he has eyebrows and he has eyes i mean he he is not notable in any way so it's not like even if some hunch was caught on that a person who works at a gas station in redding california is gonna be like oh hold on i have seen this dark-haired man who has a face with eyebrows Because he he doesn't look spectacular or interesting or someone you'd notice. I know. He's this nobody who can kind of be anywhere and nowhere at once. Did I just read Ted Bundy to Phil? No,
0: you read exactly what he did. He constantly disguised himself. He constantly blended in. He changed his hair and became a different person.
1: Honestly, Ted Bundy and Andrew Cunanan are the two most, like, versatile appearance people that I think we've ever covered. Andrew Cunanan killed Johnny Versace, and there's, like, there's a specific image you can find if you look it up of, like, six pictures of him in different quote-unquote disguises, because really it's just, like, parting his hair differently and, like, holding himself differently. And it's like, no, this is six different people.
0: And that's exactly what Bundy did grew his hair out differently, got a haircut, parted it differently, grew facial hair. He looked so different in so many instances, like even just his mugshots, They all look so different. It's crazy. So listeners, that was my freak out of the day. The thing I honestly want to dig more into because I feel really invested in this case now. I want to see this through. I want the murders of these victims, these women to be solved. We have six for sure, one missing, and one unidentified. So this is eight young women. Unfortunately, we know what happened to them. We don't know who did it or why. And that's the case of the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders.
1: Wow. I know I should have a response to this, but I I absolutely don't. I'm just kind of sitting here being like, what the actual fuck just happened? And
0: now you understand how I was feeling while doing this research. Freaking Uh, out. Yeah.
1: I mean, it is a very rare moment when we have a <gasps> of ourselves putting things together that our research that we're reading isn't. Yes. Sometimes, usually in smaller cases. But I mean, for the most part, a lot of the things that we're diving into, we're following the research. The research doesn't usually follow us. Yeah. We're not criminal investigators. No. So, yeah, now I fully understand when you were like, hold on, wait, this seems familiar. (gasps) Hold on, let me pull out my Bundy bulletin clipboard.
0: Well, and you know that Ted Bundy has always been the case. Like many people, I realize this is kind of basic in the true crime world, but that's always been so fascinating to me because of our lack of knowledge of how many victims there actually are. And the things that he did to these women are beyond horrific and I know I know there were some things I didn't even want to get into when I covered his case because it's just too much. And I hate to say it because this is disgusting, but it is also the aspect of he was the last person anyone assumed. He was so good at faking that he got away for so long. So anyway, this case wrapping into to that just really blew my mind because I'll admit it, I thought I knew most of what there was to know about Ted Bundy. And I learned I didn't. And it just opens that door to how much more mysterious he is and how many more victims there probably are.
1: Yeah, well, because you picked your case before you knew any kind of connection. I
0: knew no connection.
1: So it's like, what case are we going to stumble upon next that we're like, wait, hold on. This sounds familiar. That's not a, oh, this sounds familiar. We already did that 50 episodes ago. Whoops. Whoops. I know. Damn. That has been just a shocking postmortem. Or, I don't know, shocking case, postmortem recovery.
0: Yeah, recovering from the connections. I mean, potential connections.
1: Yes, yes, very much potential connections. But even still, it's it's a rare time when we'll have these, like, or it could be this well-known killer that's not like, well, they were murdered with knives, and we do know that this killer did live within 50 miles of a restaurant that used knives in its kitchen, so it could have been them. You know, I feel like a lot of times our connections are like, no.
0: You're just shoehorning that in.
1: Yeah, but that, I'm like, okay, no, I-, I can see where they're coming from. But again, yes, potential connections. But if y'all enjoyed this episode, and if you're currently in shock, like, I am. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. We love hearing what you have to say. We love rating your reviews. So hit that up and yeah.
0: While you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Blood and Wine Pod. Go find us. Follow us. You know, check out all the wines.
1: Do it. And with that, this is Blood
0: and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys.
1: Bye. I mean, bye!